Good morning, church, and welcome to everyone. Hope your week has been going well so far, and here's the new week. Um, and for those who have been doing well, uh, we are very happy to see you here and share in your joy and perhaps celebration. And for those who have been dealing with some difficulties, remember the promise in Psalms, uh, Psalm 147 and verse 7 says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. So because he loves you, let's rise and celebrate him this morning.
Lord, you are great indeed, God. We worship you this morning as the name above all names, the king above all kings, the one who is worthy of all our praise. We sing your praises among all the people. Your unfailing love is higher than the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O oh God, above the heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. God, we thank you so much that we can be here this morning to worship you. We thank you that you have given us life and breath. We thank you that you have given us a church where we can grow together and we can build our lives on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to pray for all the things that are happening within our body this fall. Father, we want to lift up to you the life groups and the new Bible studies coming up. We pray that everyone will get connected to some group or fellowship and experience the joy of being part of the body of Christ. And Lord, we lift up the women's and the men's retreats. We pray that many will sign up and be refreshed and renewed as they get away from the city and just focus on being with you and with brothers and sisters. Lord, we pray for the upcoming couples conference. We pray that you will use this to build strong marriages and relationships. God, we pray for Kids Night Out, the youth group, the young adult group. We pray that you would raise up a generation of men and women who would be on fire for you and for your kingdom. And Lord, we also pray for the Grief Share group. We pray especially for those who have recently lost a loved one. Lord, would they may they experience your comfort and your peace right now. And Father, we also want to celebrate this morning. We want to celebrate and offer a special prayer for Tom and Angela, who just got married yesterday. Lord, may you bless them richly. May they get off to a great start in their marriage. And together, may they be even a more powerful blessing as they, than they are now as a couple. Father, there are so many things going on in the world, and we want to pray for things that are happening outside of our local community. Lord, I think especially of the twin tragedies that struck Morocco and Libya very recently. And thousands of people have died, and, and countless people have been impacted by these tragedies. Father, we pray for the local governments and there, together with the international community, to just be able to bring relief and comfort to the many who are suffering. And Father, we pray for the Christian ministries there, that they would be able to not only share and provide physical aid, but also point people to Christ. Father, please protect our missionaries who are serving overseas. Give them strength and courage, especially those who are working in very hostile environments. And Father, we just want to continue our worship this morning as we listen to the message. We pray, Lord, for your anointing on Pastor Aaron. And Lord, through this message, may you give us all insight on how to confront injustice with courage and integrity. So we ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Naomi Lim, and I'm going to share my testimony. 
I was born and raised in a Christian family. My parents took me and my brother to church every Sunday for worship service, fellowship, Sunday schools, and prayer. At first, I didn't know so much about God at a very young age. But when my mom placed me and my brother at another church for after-school programs and summer day camp where we used to live nearby, I was starting to get a little exposure to Christianity. I kept hearing people say Jesus, which I didn't know what that meant until a week before winter recess. During that time, someone told us about the meaning of Christmas by saying, it's not about Santa Claus giving presents to kids by riding his reindeer and going down the chimney. It's about the birth of Jesus Christ, who God sent to save all of us from the sins we've made. I still have little understanding about who Jesus is. And as I joined the youth group, my Sunday school teacher taught us a topic called trading places. As we read in Genesis 44, verses 33 through 34 state, now please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. My Sunday school teacher explained that Judah was willing to take the punishment for Benjamin and offer his life as a sacrifice, which is he traded places. I learned this foreshadows Jesus trading places for us and that he was willing to die on the cross just to save our sins so that we can go to heaven and live for eternal life. As John 3 verse 16 states, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So I decided to accept Jesus as my savior and confess that he is Lord. But before getting baptized, I was a very quiet and shy girl who didn't easily make friends and socialize with other people. Not only that, but I also rarely participated in class discussions. I realized that I felt isolated back then. I experienced a sense of loneliness. As soon as I got to know God, after getting baptized at 14, I sensed the Lord encouraging me to talk by consistently participating in class, little by little throughout my high school life. Although I also have the courage to build relationships with teachers and guidance counselors, I still had a lack of socializing with peers. However, once my first semester in college started, I felt God leading me to talk with other people on campus without hesitation, especially when I heard about student clubs and organizations being offered to college students, I joined some of the Christian clubs on campus. This is how God helped me to make friends by being open-minded when interacting with other students and listening to them through fellowships, Bible study, and prayer. Not only that, but God has also provided me the wisdom to be more independent in my life. Even when I became a student teacher, God gave me the voice to teach students so that they could understand the lesson. God gave me confidence as well, because I know I can always depend on him to practice teaching before preparing the lesson and pray earnestly by faith. I am still a quiet person, but I'm grateful that God has helped me by changing me to become somebody who is vocal enough to speak and overcoming my isolation. Now that I already graduated college with a bachelor's degree, I'm thankful that God is always there with me and he never leaves me alone. 
This is my testimony. Thank you so much. Nehemiah 5, Nehemiah helps the poor. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have to have to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what, are, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did this as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I appointed to be governor in the land of Judah until the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor our brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over to the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All the men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, some poultry were prepared for me. Every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, O oh my God, for all I've done for these people.
Good morning, First Baptist Church. How are we? Solid. Sorry, turned off my iPad. Tim Keller has observed that some people try to deal with the problem of senseless suffering by abandoning belief in God. That leaves some big questions. If there's no God, why should we be outraged when bad or unjust things happen to people? Violence, cruelty, and injustice happen all the time. On what basis can we say that they're wrong? Now, two famous thinkers gave very different answers to those questions. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his uh, 1963 letter from the Birmingham jail uh, writing said that if there were no higher divine law that defined what justice is, there would be no way to tell if anything we do was unjust or not. Now, of course, we know that Dr. King, a follower of Jesus, spent his life fighting against injustice. Contrast this with the German philosopher and atheist Frederick Nietzsche, who heard that a volcanic eruption followed by tsunamis had destroyed Java in Indonesia in 1883. He wrote to a friend, 200,000 wiped out at a stroke. How magnificent. That's awful. Nietzsche was just being logically consistent, though. Because he didn't believe in God, he concluded that all value judgments are arbitrary. All definitions of justice are based on your culture or your temperament, not on objective morality. Now, as different as their views were, King and Nietzsche agreed on one point, and that is if there is no God or higher divine law, then injustice is perfectly natural. Now, of course, Christians believe that there is a God. Uh, more than that, Christians believe that people are made in the image of God. And because we are made in God's image, each of us has been imbued, poured into us this dignity, this worth from even the greatest to the least. This dignity and worth, this sense of somebodiness means that all of us have value. We ought to be treated with equity, with fairness, and with respect. And yet, as we look around the world, all of us will recognize that this is not always the case. We see discrimination that leads to income inequality. We see unequal treatment in the criminal justice system leading uh, to harsher sentencing for some. We hear of exploitative labor practices in the form of low wages and poor working conditions. We read of inequalities in education with these huge disparities in school funding and resources between the affluent and the disadvantaged schools. And it's not exclusively an American problem, certainly not a modern day problem. Yet what Dr. King said uh, during the civil rights movement of the 60s rings true today. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So Christians, in particular, long for justice. In his book, uh, Simply Christian, N.T. Wright begins his chapter entitled uh, Putting the World to Rights with this story. He said, I, I had a dream the other night, a powerful and interesting dream. The really frustrating thing is that I can't remember what it was about. I had this flash of it as I woke up. I'm sure you've had that before, too. Right? Enough to make me think how extraordinary, how meaningful it was, and then it was gone. 
Our passion for justice often seems like that. Our passion uh, uh, for justice is often a dream of justice. We glimpse for a moment a world at one, a world put to rights, a world where things work out, where societies function fairly, efficiently, and then we wake up and we come back to reality. According to Wright, our longing for justice comes with the kit of being human. Now, even though, unfortunately, we all strive for justice, we often fail to achieve it. He says, you fall off your bike and you break your leg. You go to the hospital, they fix it. You stagger around on crutches for a while. Then, rather, rather gingerly, you start to walk normally again. There is such a thing as putting something to rights, as in fixing it and, and getting it back on track. You can fix a broken leg, a broken toy, a broken television. So why can't we fix injustice? It's not for lack of trying. And yet, despite the failures to fix injustice, we keep dreaming of that one day all broken things will be set right. Right contends. Christians believe this is so because all humans have heard deep within themselves the echo of a voice which calls us to live with a dream for justice. Followers of Jesus believe that in Jesus, that voice became human and did what had to be done to bring it about. Now today, we're going to see a situation in the post-exilic community uh, where Nehemiah can confronts this situation of injustice, this oppression that takes place, happening within the community. As hard as it was to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem, it was even harder to rebuild the people in Jerusalem. What we're going to see as we explore this passage is this danger of turning a, a blind eye to a problem, namely injustice. And yet what we will also see is the power of God at work in his people when we repent of our indifference and when we have the courage to confront. Now, we're going to look at our passage in three parts. First, we will look at the darkness of injustice. Second, the courage to confront. And finally, the value of integrity. So the darkness of injustice, the courage to confront, and the value of integrity. We'll pray now, and after we pray, we'll jump right in. Would you all bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Our Father in heaven, as we come to this passage uh, that speaks of confronting injustice, we lament over injustice. We repent of our own sins. We lament the many ways that people are valued differently just because of wealth, skin color, appearances. Help us to remember that you made each of us in your image, that you love each of us deeply. May we be people who love mercy and act in ways that are just and right. Lord, in <clears throat> Lord, imprint more of your just character on our souls so that we'll see things just like you do. Treat every person in a way that honors you. We long for that day, that day when we see justice rolling through our streets, our neighborhoods. Help us now to be listeners and doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, the darkness of injustice. Read with me verses 1 to 5 of Nehemiah chapter 5. Now the men and women raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive. We must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. 
Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Now, the problem at hand uh, was that the Jewish families who had returned to Jerusalem were now becoming destitute. Now, farming is a difficult job. There's this show called Clarkson's Farm. It's uh, on Amazon Prime. Has anyone ever seen it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay, a few of you. It's really funny. So you never expect farming to be interesting, but it is. So on this show, um, Jeremy Clarkson, who's famous for being the host of Top Gear, right, he decides that he will try his hand at farming his own land in rural England. And so he, he buys a Lamborghini tractor, this huge Lamborghini tractor, and then all this equipment and seed, and then he starts to get to work. Now, even with these seemingly limitless resources, every single episode of season one chronicles the hardships of farming from the unpredict unpredictability of weather uh, all the way to the pests that can devour the vegetation and leave a field in ruins. Now, because of this show, Clarkson even wins this top uh, award from the British farmers for flying the flag for British agriculture. Because through this show, people got to see just how hard it is to be a farmer. Now, that's modern day farming, where we have had 2,500 years to improve on farming practices. Now, let's go back to post-exilic Israel without any modern day equipment. It's entirely possible now, understand this, it's entirely possible to be diligent and responsible and yet end up in a desperate place. Their troubles and their list of complaints included no savings for some of these families to buy grain. The situation deteriorating to the point where the families now had to mortgage their own property, having to borrow money to pay taxes on their property, which ultimately ended and resulted in slavery. It's become this cycle of poverty that they just could not crawl out of. Now, Gary Hagan, president of the International Justice Mission, defines poverty in this way. The poor are the ones who can never afford to have any bad luck. The poor are the ones who can never afford to have any bad luck. They can't get an infection because they don't have access to any medicine. They can't get sick or miss their bus or get injured because they'll lose their menial labor job if they don't show up for work. They can't misplace their pocket change because it's actually the only money they have left for food. They can't have their goats get sick because it's the only source of milk they have. On and on it goes. Of course, the bad news is everybody has bad luck. It's just that most of us have these margins of resources and access of support that, that will allow us to weather that storm because we're not trying to live off of $2 a day. Most of us who aren't truly poor, uh, this becomes an important reminder of that crushing cycle produced by poverty. Now it's the people of Jerusalem who found themselves entrenched in this very same cycle of poverty. This economic oppression didn't happen overnight, but the problem was that no one did anything about it until it came to Nehemiah. Countrymen were betraying countrymen. Nobles and officials were using these moments of hardship to, uh, uh, to use it as opportunities for profit for themselves. 
they were exploiting those fragile positions of their people in order to line their own pockets to advance their own standing. Now, even those who were not uh, actively defrauding the weak and the vulnerable chose to turn this blind eye to the injustice. It was like this little dirty secret in Jerusalem where everyone knew what was going on, but nobody said a word about it. It's been said, there comes a time when silence is betrayal. Now, sin and injustice have this way of thriving in secrecy. And, and when they're left unchecked, they're allowed to fester. They have this way of spreading like gangrene. And what happens is when unscrupulous people sit in positions of power, they may be fully aware of the problem, but simultaneously they choose to turn this blind eye because they fear the repercussions may be too great. The saddest part is that even the church of Jesus Christ is not immune to this. We grieve over those reports of abuse that were covered up in our generation, how wicked people were never removed from positions of power. The reasoning was always along the same lines. We can't make these allegations and these reports public because it would damage the name of Jesus Christ. It would ruin the reputation of this ministry. It would unnecessarily hinder the good work of God that was being done. We need to protect the organization. We need to protect the name of Jesus. And all this is patently false. The name of Jesus doesn't need to be protected. The lion doesn't need protection. These are all lies and half-truths that the enemy whispers into the ears of leaders to lull them into inaction. This is the darkness of injustice, the way that uh, sin festers and, and how a problem turns into a crisis. I think all of us have to consider for ourselves when we might be tempted to stay silent in times when we need to speak out. Situations are rarely cut and dry. Oftentimes you'll sense a certain tension because there, there will be a cost to speaking up. But we also need to consider the long-term consequences of staying silent. Could your silence contribute to perpetuating injustice? Would your silence amount to betrayal? May the Lord grant us the courage to speak up when the time calls for it. Now this leads us to, secondly, the courage to confront. Where are we? Okay. The courage to confront. Sorry. Sorry. The courage to confront. <laughs> Nehemiah hears the outcries. He's livid. He knows that they had called Israel to be his chosen people, a royal nation. They were to be this light to the nations. But now their witness was even worse than the nations, with these predatory loans, the, the enslavement of their own people. It's incongruent with who they were called to be. Now, in the same way, Christians are called to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, of all people, we're supposed to be the ones who are ch champion, championing justice and mercy. So that's why the outside world is rightfully outraged when Christians fall short of that. Because after all, of all people, Christians are the ones who believe that if God is on the side of the oppressed and downtrodden, then we ought to be standing right where God is. Biblical scholar Christopher Wright tells a moving story about a friend uh, from India who was led to Christ by reading the Old Testament. At the time, uh, he taught engineering at the local university, but he had grown up among the despised Dalit. This was the outcast uh, 
community with, within his village. His whole family had suffered greatly at the hands of the high caste Hindus in the village. All kinds of harassment, violence, injustice. And this man had this great thirst for revenge against his oppressors. So he worked very hard at school to, in order to get to university so that he could get a job with some influence and power and then turn the tables on his enemy. The day arrived at the university, uh, he found a Bible uh, translated into uh, his state language in his room. He never read the Bible before, and though he knew that it was, uh, even though he knew that it was the Christian's holy book, so he opened it randomly. Start reading this story in the Old Testament of Naboth and Ahab in 1 Kings 21. It's a story about how the unjust king Ahab uh, uses his power to steal land from Naboth, an ordinary farmer. The story had so many familiar elements to him. This was my story, he said. M my family was also one that experienced land theft, false accusations, murder, brutality of the powerful against the ordinary people. But then he read on. He was amazed to read about another man called Elijah now, who in the name of God denounced King Ahab, said that he would be judged and punished by this God. And this was astounding to the man. This man had millions of gods within Hinduism. But he had never heard of such a God as he read about in this Bible. Here was a God who took the side of the suffering ones and condemned the government and the powerful for their wicked deeds. And he said, I never knew of such a God. As the man continued to read the Bible, he learned about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. He also learned about the need to forgive. But his road to conversion started by meeting the God who is just and who takes the side of the oppressed. Now for Nehemiah, he knew he needed to have courage to confront the injustice in Jerusalem. He addresses it head on. Read with me, verses 7 and 8. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are stealing your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Now it was permissible within the Jewish law to lend money to a fellow Jewish person, but there were also restrictions when it came to charging interest. As Deuteronomy uh, 23:19 states, do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. Now, they weren't even supposed to charge interest, uh, but here we have these predatory loans where people were loaning on top of loans with the ultimate goal of taking over the property, repossessing it, because it was had to be used for collateral. Now, have you ever played Monopoly, that game? Man, what a terrible game, right? <laughs> I remember when I was a young kid, I played Monopoly one time, and um, I knew I was gonna win, and the grown-ups all wanted to quit, and I said, no, let me lend to you. <laughs> and we kept playing and playing, and I, I realized at the end, I was the only person having fun. All right? Now, here we have 
a similar situation where they were treating their fellow countrymen like opponents in a game of Monopoly. They already know that they had lost the game, except in this game of real life, the losers couldn't concede. They have to play it out to its bitter end. The repossession of property wasn't even the worst part. The worst part was how they were selling off their own people. The Jewish nobles, the officials, were forcing people into slavery, people who they should have been welcoming as brothers and sisters. Of course, the nobles knew that they were in the wrong, so they had nothing to say. Verse 9 goes on. So I continued. What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? The fear of God transforms our lives. The fear of God convicts. The fear of God means taking God seriously. As one person has said, the fear of God asks, what does God feel about this situation? How does the gospel speak to this situation? Holy Spirit, how can you show up to bring transformation to this situation? Too often, believers or uh, unbelievers are, un, are able to think uh, they, that Christians come to church on a Sunday, talk about stuff with no relevance to real life and real difficulties, and then retreat back to their comfortable homes. Now, what we should be doing as churches is developing common ground with our neighbors, with the hurting, with the lost, so that we can share Jesus, show them that the gospel is relevant to them. Now, Nehemiah is direct in his confrontation. He calls it out. He calls a foul when he sees it. Verses 10 and 11. I and my brothers and my, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, houses, and also the interest you're charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Notice that when Nehemiah calls out the Jewish nobles, the officials, the justice that he seeks is a restorative justice. It's not a punitive justice. His demand on the, the leadership was to return the property, stop with the predatory loans. What he was trying to do was to make things right. What he wasn't trying to do was to exact revenge to crush the oppressors. Because as Aunt May from Spider-Man says, revenge is like a poison. It can take you over. And before you know it, it can turn you into something ugly. The goal of biblical justice is always restoration. The nobles, the officials are caught now. That Thankfully, they're, they're convicted by this confrontation. Verse 12 goes on. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Now, I love how Nehemiah says it. Uh, uh, and then... After they agree, he calls the priests in. He has this entire ceremony to take an oath to solemnly have them swear that they will do what they promise. The public witnesses now serve to guarantee that these nobles, these officials, will not be able to make a pledge in private and then ignore it later on to go back on their word without ever uh, giving, giving back. Because everyone now knows. Now, let's back up for a moment to see the goodness in all of this. What we have here is a follower of the Lord pointing out to their fellow believers a, a blemish, a, a dark spot, if you will, a flaw in their character. Scripture says, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And that is essentially what's happening here. 
It's certainly for the good of the community, but it's also for the good of the individual. Do you see that? Now, a lot of you know that for some strange reason, uh, I always get food stuck in my teeth. And my wife always has to tell me, you got something over here, right? It's always an awkward conversation. It's always a hard thing to broach, but I appreciate it because it's always better than uh, going home and having spinach in your teeth, right? Now imagine a community if we live in an environment like that where unintentional sins, injustices would be pointed out and it would be made right for the good of the community and also for the good of the individual, all for the glory of God. May it be so. May we have the, the ability, the willingness to, to, to broach the awkwardness, the difficulty, to speak truth to one another, to confront when necessary, even if it's not our primary, our natural inclination. Finally, our passage ends with the value of integrity. The value of integrity. Now, Nehemiah is the governor of Judah, and as governor, he was given substantial rights and privileges. However, he chose to forego all those rights and privileges for the sake of the people. See how this plays out in verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, uh, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. Now, as the governor, it was well within their rights, uh, his rights, to demand his daily allotment of fine food from the people. That was kind of like, if you will, his expense account that he could draw from. But after all, um, for, for him, as he looked on, he realized that's what all the previous governors had done. But he didn't choose to do this. Nehemiah didn't tax the people heavily in order to keep up his governor's lifestyle. Now, it has to be said that at the same time, Nehemiah didn't live like a peasant, right? Because it can be easy to come away with this picture that uh, uh, Nehemiah is just a man of the people, so he lived very poorly or, or whatnot. No, verse 17 reminds us he had 150 Jews and officials eating at his table. He still lived like a governor, only he took it out of his own savings so as to not become a burden. Now, some of us here are, are wondering, how do they fit 150 pe people at one table? That must have been some table, right? Yeah, it's, it's possible that it was a figure of speech, a metonymy where a part represents the whole, you know, like a table, meaning the entire dining room. Or maybe it's like a huge table, uh, where, like when an entire church fellowship goes to a buffet, right? And they say, we got 30 people, and they all line up like that. I have no idea which one it is. Whichever it is, the point is that even though Nehemiah had rights, he voluntarily chose to lay down those rights for the good of the people. One commentator summarizes it well. He renounced the governor's food allowance, which was a tax upon the people. He refused to exploit the people. In contrast to his predecessors, he acquired no land, probably highly unusual among officials of the time. It's clear that the honest policy cost Nehemiah dearly. Verses 17 and 18 give, give a glimpse of the daily demands upon his hospitality, partly occasioned by his diplomatic responsibilities as governor, and partly, it seems, acceded to simply from his generosity. His motives in acting thus were, A, his fear of God, which means simply that he acted out of this awareness of what was appropriate for one who worshiped God, and B, compassion for 
the people suffering. His motives in telling us about it may be similar to those of the Apostle Paul, who while insisting strongly on his right to share in the material welfare uh, of those among whom he worked, renounced that right, lest his motivation come in question. This is the value of integrity. As a person of character, he willingly lays down the rights uh, for the common good. He, he, he's doing this by leading this example. So as people look on and he calls them to, to leave behind injustice, they see it in him. His witness causes the people to follow him willingly because they know he won't ask them to do what he won't do himself. In order to fight for justice, you need to model integrity in your own life, to lay down certain rights, even though it might be due to you. In conclusion, of course, the ultimate answer to injustice is Jesus. Eric Mason reminds us this about Jesus, that he came to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It was Jesus's mission statement. He came to preach good news to those who were most broken. The good news was only good news because Jesus came not only in word, but also in deed. The good news he was proclaiming was the good news of the cross. We are all like those oppressive nobles, the officials in Nehemiah 5. We don't fear God as we should, and we don't act rightly. We deserve punishment. However, God is a God of love, of grace, and he wanted to save us. And so Jesus came without sin to die on the cross, to take the punishment on behalf of all of us. And because he took and yeah, was able to withstand the full blow of God's wrath, now God can apply grace and mercy and love to those who trust in him without us dying the way Jesus did. We can gain the Holy Spirit and be regenerated from the inside out. And that's why Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's speaking about this year of jubilee. Jesus was dealing with these deep issues of injustice, these pains which people in Jerusalem had experienced, and then more. He came once for all to put an end to injustice forever. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. The favor Jesus came to proclaim is about justice and freedom. It's about gaining forgiveness for sin, transformation inside out, life for all eternity. This is the gospel we proclaim. This is the gospel we embody. This is the gospel that saves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would make uh, up there come down here. We long for the day when justice would reign uh, and that uh, all injustice and oppression would be a thing of the past. But until that day, we pray that, that we would uh, see and, and uh, side with those in need, that we would not turn a blind eye. So give us wisdom, give us discernment. Most of all, give us courage. Uh, to live in accordance to the calling we have received. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise for the response song.
Good morning, everybody. You know, people ask me what I do for a living. I say TSA. And they say, oh, you work at airport security? I say, no, I'm the third string announcer at the First Baptist Church of Flushing. So Tony, who normally does the announcements, is uh, off in Disney World. Hi, Tony. Wish we were there. So uh, you're stuck with me. Let me move this out of my way. So the first thing we want to do is we want to welcome any new visitors. Do we have any new visitors there? You have to wave at me. Can you wave at me? Any new visitors here? We have one up here. The ushers have some new visitor cards. If you would be kind enough to take one, identify yourself. If you fill that out, uh, it'll give us an opportunity to reach out to you. And also, as you go out of the sanctuary on your way out, there'll be a welcome table with some uh, friendly people from our church and some blue bags that are full of gifts. No cash, but lots of gifts. <laughs> so uh, now that we're done welcoming the new visitors, let's welcome each other. And uh, as you greet each other, um, I want you to, let's, let's keep it brief. Let's talk about what we're going to have for lunch so that we'll remind each other to keep it brief. <laughs> let's all greet each other. All right, all right, how much are you going to eat? I have to finish the announcements before you can get to that lunch, so let's, let's do this. Okay, um, some exciting things happening as we get into the fall season here. Uh, first of all, life groups. You know, we, we preach and we talk a lot about uh, being prepared for spiritual battle, but how many of us know that we have to equip ourselves for those spiritual battles, and we do that by coming together over God's word. Uh, if you look at the yellow insert, there's four different life groups that you can sign up for. Uh, there's contact information and a description for each one of them. So please prayerfully go through this and, uh, and sign up because not only will you be blessed, but you'll be a blessing. And there's some wonderful topics here. There's one I wish I had taken this before I gotten married. Don't give the enemy a seat at your table. That was a joke. <laughs> All right, let's go on to the next. Uh, perhaps I shouldn't have said that joke before this next one, which is the, uh, the women's retreat. The women's retreat, Fiona, is coming up 11-3 uh, through 11-5, and that's going to be at the Tuscarora Inn. And uh, the cost is listed there, and uh, the sign-up information. Um, so please prayerfully think about that. If you have any questions, you can email Maria or you can see Maria outside to coordinate uh, anything or any questions that you may have. All right. Now um, we're going to ask Lauren Moy to come up because she's going to talk to us about the uh, couples conference.
you hear that our church is having a one-day couples conference? Really? When is it? Uh, it's on Saturday, October 21, and it's from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., and you know we're free that day. Wow. <laughs> what a surprise. Who's speaking? Um, Pastor uh, Stephen and Susan Creanch. Um, they're terrific. I've heard them speak at another conference. Uh, Pastor Stephen is also a coach with Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, and his wife Susan is a clinical psychologist. And how much does this conference cost? This sounds great, but I just want to know how much it costs. Um, it's, it's only $20. $20? Per person. <laughs> oh, $20 for, okay. $20 and, but for it includes lunch and snacks and materials, so it's very affordable. That sounds great. Wow, so it is affordable, so maybe after service we should sign up. That's great. Uh, so you, you want to go too? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yes, dear. <laughs> So we hope that you'll join us. Um, in, in your bulletin is a pink insert. So if you're interested in registering, please complete it. And um, also, if you have any questions or if you'd like to register, see Ray and I will be in the lobby after the service. We just want to say you do not have to be married to come to this conference. You could be dating. You could be in a relationship. Right, right? You could be engaged. So it's not a requirement to be to be married. Thank you. Thank you. That was some excellent acting, you know. With the, with with the Screen Actors Strike on, I think they may be getting some calls from some high-powered uh, movie producers. So this is off off uh, the script, but if we could just uh, for a minute, we're about ten thousand eighty-four minutes away from Pastor Gary's return from his sabbatical. I mean, how many of us have missed Pastor Gary while he's been on sabbatical? Now, the great part is, not only has it been a time of spiritual refreshment for Pastor Gary, but he also underwent shoulder, shoulder uh, surgery, so he's coming back to us more physically fit than ever. And, you know, the, I didn't know this, but the sh shoulder surgery uh, is actually part of a, he's going to try out for the Mets next season. So, but we did get a promise from him that if he signs up with the Mets, he will make sure that they give him every other Sunday off to come and preach here. So we won't be missing him. Um, so please, as uh, Pastor Gary comes back, let's pray for him and let's let him know how much we miss him when we see him uh, after his sabbatical. Uh, fourth, uh, men's retreat. Um, is coming up, and this is actually the last little time that you have to sign up for it. It's going to be September 29th to October 1st, also at Tuscarora Inn, and uh, all the sign-up information is in the bulletin, but if you have any questions, please see Joe Cena after service. If you don't know who Joe is, see me, and I'll point you over to Joe. A um, couple more. Kids Night Out, K-N-O, starts October 13th. Um, all the information, again, is listed there with the dates, and there's a QR code in the bulletin that you can use to sign up. And then uh, finally, uh, we have the Young Adult Group, which is for college age and up, and that's going to be in person every second and fourth Sunday 
after service. So uh, with that, I want to ask Sovan to come up because he has one more announcement about the upcoming Bible study. no uh, skit for you today, but it's going to be show and tell. And uh, But before I show you anything, I'm going to give you um, a commentary uh, that was from an American to Soviet youths in an audience back in the late 80s. And he was introducing this song that he wrote, and now that's part of my show and tell. The song is about young people living in the northeast of America. Their lives are miserable because the steel factories are closing down. They desperately want to leave, but they stay because they were brought up to believe that things were going to get better. Maybe that sounds familiar. Any guesses uh, as far as the speaker there? So here's a clue. Part of my show and tell. With hair. <laughs> That's Billy Joel. And this album was released in 1982 the year that I graduated college and the year that I joined this church. And the song uh, that he was talking about was the song Allentown. And uh, it was uh, one of his uh, medium-sized hits. But uh, I speak of Allentown to introduce to you two men who you may or may not know. The first one was our pastor, Russell Rosser, who came and at that time, uh, I was getting to know him and the leadership here at church for those few years. And then a few years later, another guy came from Allentown into town, uh, into New York City, and uh, he got to meet Pastor Rosser, and Pastor Rosser shared with us his impressions of uh, this new guy in town named Tim Keller. So they're both from the same hometown, and that's all in the introductory uh, to say that this will be our book uh, that we'll be using in the next adult uh, Sunday school class. So I'll take your names and uh, money to pre-order this uh, so we'll be ready for this in the next couple of weeks. And uh, we'll show you a preview of uh, this class uh, from Pastor Keller himself. How do you live out the gospel in life between Sunday morning and Saturday night? How do you live out the gospel in life between the world that is and the world to come? And how do you live out the gospel in life between mission and discipleship, evangelism and justice, cultural engagement and distinctive practices, between your Christian community and the community around you. One opens the course with the theme of the city. Week eight closes the course with the theme of the eternal city. In between, we will look at how the gospel changes our hearts, brings us into community, and is lived out in the world. Gospel-shaped people are enabled to form deep community, and yet, only in deep community can we become gospel-shaped people. And if I gave you a test, on justification by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, through the uh, substitutionary work of Christ alone, you'd probably get 100% on that test. But that does not mean your heart believes it. Justice, then, is just love in action. It's bringing shalom, 
and justice is something the Bible says we owe our neighbor. And if you really want to change, and if you want to really pound the gospel more deeply into your heart, Jesus Christ must become your overmastering positive passion. Thank you, Soban. So it's now offering time. I hope we're all excited about that. We're going to continue our worship. Um, we're going to ask the ushers to come forward as uh, we go to prayer for this week's offering. Father, we thank you so much for this church that you've planted here in this neighborhood, Father. You've given us a mission to uh, serve the community, to proclaim Christ, and to share your gospel, Father. Uh, we just pray that you would take this offering from us and that we would give joyfully and sacrificially so that we could share in that mission and see your work done here in Queens. In Jesus' name we pray. gazed on your face at the thorns of oppression and the wounds of disgrace for surely you have borne our
Would you all rise for the benediction? Receive the benediction to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.